This is Monday Morning QB, September 13th, 2021. I'm Askia Muhammad. Today on the show, the largest Confederate statue in the country has come down. Federal unemployment benefits have come down. Disasters caused by those supposed to be delivering aid. And a huge worldwide anti-racism conference, which 9-11 made us all but forget. All that and more, stay with us. The largest Confederate statue in the United States has been removed from its pedestal in Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy. Last Wednesday, a 12-ton, 21-foot-tall statue of Robert E. Lee was lowered by crane, sawed in two pieces, and carted away on a flatbed truck. Watching all this happen were hundreds of onlookers who clapped and cheered and offered up this classic send-off song to a symbol of white oppression that had been in place for 131 years. The removal of Robert E. Lee from his place of honor is surely worth that kind of celebration, but it should also serve as a reminder there are still hundreds of public monuments of the Confederacy across the United States. Sue Goodwin reports. Among the many groups that have come out in support of seeing monuments to the Confederacy removed from public spaces is the Southern Poverty Law Center and they've been at it for some time. Leisha Brooks is the Outreach Director at the Southern Poverty Law Center, also known as SPLC. We spoke with her in June of 2020, shortly after Virginia Governor Ralph Northam first announced the Robert E. Lee statue would be removed from the state-owned property it sat on. And she told us to understand why this was so necessary to do. It's important to understand when and why these monuments to the Confederacy went up in the first place. Most people believe that they went up immediately after the end of the Civil War, which was in 1865, and that's incorrect. The first real push to erect these statues and monuments in public space came during the era of Reconstruction. This was around the same time that former Confederate states were creating their constitution. So a couple of reasons why they went up. One, primarily to reassert white supremacy. Emancipation had taken place, but these former Confederate leaders wanted to reassert white supremacy and remind the African-American population what was really going to still remain the law of the land. And the monuments weren't just going up in the South, they were going up in the North as well. Because after the Civil War, the federal government was looking for a way to pull the nation back together. They sought to appease some of the former Confederate leaders and allowed them to create these monuments to leaders of the Confederacy and place them outside of the Deep South, right? So that's why we find them in D.C. That's why we find them, you know, really like all over the country. But appeasement aside, back in the South, a more insidious agenda was at play as these monuments continued to go up. 
it was also at a time where states were beginning to codify black codes. So even though the system of chattel slavery had been abolished, these black codes and then Jim Crow laws were ways to still establish this this caste system of white superiority and black inferiority. So it was kind of like reminding, kind of like, okay, you had the emancipation, but this is really what's going on, um, and you need to be reminded of that. So how many monuments are remaining now? To be able to answer that question, back in 2015, the Southern Poverty Law Center launched an online catalog of public Confederate monuments. It's titled, Whose Heritage? Public Symbols of the Confederacy. This came as a response to the murders of nine black people at the Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and after the murderer, 21-year-old Dylan Roof, posted photos of himself holding a Confederate flag, as well as posing in front of a car with state-issued specialty license plates bearing an image of the flag. One recent update to the report, released in February of this year, shows that more than 700 monuments to the Confederacy still remain on public land, but the SPLC count goes far beyond that. It encompasses government buildings, schools, parks, counties, cities, military property, streets, and highways named after anyone associated with the Confederacy. Again, Here is Leisha Brooks in a more recent conversation just last week. I'm glad you brought that up because most people kind of just think of it in terms of these big statues of of Robert E. Lee on a horse. And that's just not the end of it. The United Daughters of the Confederacy and the Sons of the Confederate Veterans, um, they were really thorough in their campaign. And there were elected officials all over the country that that joined them in trying to rehabilitate the, the reputation of the South. And so they they changed names. They their their street names af, named after uh, Confederate leaders in Montgomery, Alabama, where I am. There's Jeff Davis Avenue or uh, Robert E. Lee Street, Robert E. Lee High School, Jeff Davis High School. There are parks. There are trails. There are the ten military installations you referenced. There are just all kinds of symbols and icons of the Confederacy, literally littered across the country. And we've had them with us for so long that we just don't even pay attention to it anymore. Don't even question it. And it adds up. Counting all these together, the report found that more than 2,100 Confederate symbols are still publicly present in the United States. Be that as it may, Leisha Brooks and her colleagues at the Southern Poverty Law Center see reason to take heart on this issue as the movement grows to get rid of these symbols. Their report also found that 168 Confederate symbols were removed across the United States in 2020, virtually all of them following the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officers. And we've seen more symbols of the Confederacy come down um, since Twenty in 2020 than the, the four years preceding that combined. So people are paying attention to the streets that they're driving down and, the, and more importantly, the schools that their children are attending and who they're named after. 
To further this effort, back in April, SPLC launched a billboard campaign in a number of southern communities where activists are working to take down public tributes to the Confederacy. SPLC hopes that the billboard campaign drawing attention to these symbols and what they mean will support local grassroots movements by helping others understand that Confederate monuments and symbols legitimize racial hierarchy and white supremacist ideology. The symbols of the Confederacy or any type of Confederate iconography, um, its purpose is to advance or assert white supremacy. The Southern Poverty Law Center feels very strongly that they should not exist in public space because at the same time they assert or reassert white supremacy, they are asserting a a dehumanization or targeting black people who were the victims of these so-called heroes. They support a veneration of people who actually fought to continue the continuation of enslaving human beings, black people. And so to have to view them, ancestors of of African-Americans, and, you know, anyone else is to continue the assertion that they were right and they were honorable and that the country doesn't care about really the feelings of, of those that were targeted. So to bring this story back again to where we started, the removal of Robert E. Lee from Monument Avenue in Richmond, Virginia, we asked Leisha Brooks last week what it felt like to watch the statue finally come down and how it connects to this larger movement to stop the public celebration of Confederate icons and history. I felt a tremendous sense of pride today and really kind of in the days leading up to it, knowing that Soon after the the Virginia Supreme Court uh, ruled that it could be taken down, I was ecstatic. And it just felt surreal. Um, It really reminds me of the power of the people to create positive change. People in Virginia have been trying to um, get their state to remove these, these statues, these symbols of the Confederacy, since the Unite the Right rally. And you remember in 2017 when uh, Heather Heyer was killed at this event where neo-Nazis, neo-Confederates, and all kinds of bad actors came together to protect the statue of Robert E. Lee. So to know that that this huge, this huge monument to Robert E. Lee and Monument Road that's just been there uh, for decades has, has come down is a really, really, really big deal. It's a really, it's a really big deal, and I hope that it serves to, to encourage uh, people across the country to keep, keep at it, um, and they can, they too can see change in their community. Leisha Brooks is the outreach director at the Southern Poverty Law Center. To read their report, Whose Heritage: Public Symbols of the Confederacy, visit splcenter.org. That's splcenter.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. Last Monday, Labor Day, 
was far from a celebration for American workers. An estimated 7.5 million people lost access to unemployment insurance benefits as federal aid programs were allowed to lapse. Many Republicans and conservative economists say the elimination of benefits will push unemployed workers back to work, but real-world experience tells us otherwise. Chris Banger-Drowns reports. Republicans tested their employment theory earlier this summer when 26 states decided to prematurely pull out of federal unemployment benefits programs that had been set up as emergency stopgaps during the coronavirus recession. That test failed miserably. Only one in eight workers kicked off benefits found work, and consumer spending was decimated by nearly $2 billion, according to research published by a group of university economists in late August. The significant reduction in consumer spending from this summer's limited test pales in comparison to the expected impacts from the Labor Day cutoff. Andrew Stetner is a senior fellow at the Century Foundation, where he researches and writes about employment and the economy. Stetner says the experiences of the past year have shown that changes in the willingness of people to work has had very little to do with unemployment benefits. It comes to the fact that during this labor market crisis, it's been the conditions of our ability to contain COVID-19 that have impacted the rate of economic recovery, not uh, any unemployment benefits. People know with unemployment benefits that they're temporary by nature, even when there's an extension. And they know their only hope for a solid economic future, uh, upward mobility, healthcare benefits, steady retirement is to get a job. And so that's why people went back to work uh, when the $600 benefit was available, you know, to have, you know, a, a stable future. And people right now that can't work, it's issues related to their fear of COVID, the, the uncertainty of employers for filling job openings. As the Delta surge has come back, people's ability to care for their children, you know, those are the issues that are driving the labor market uh, recovery, not, you know, the unemployment benefits. You know, a lot of the jobs that are not been filled are, are, have been bad jobs. You know, half of restaurant workers have said that they've uh, thought about leaving the industry permanently during the pandemic because the wages are low, it's unstable, it became unsafe, sexual harassment is rampant. You know, so these are the industries that are having difficulties finding workers, you know, those that don't provide uh, a decent wage and benefit package. I definitely want to get to this question of which jobs are available and, and the sort of incongruence between job seekers and available jobs. Uh, but first, I, I want to kind of focus on the this benefits cutoff. Clearly, the, the human cost of the lapse in federal benefits is immense, you know, 7.5 million workers and their families. But the economic impacts must extend beyond those families immediately. Is it possible to predict with some degree of accuracy how much our recession recovery will be slowed down by this lapse in benefits? Well, you know, we know that this is going to take $5 billion per week out of the economy uh, and that unemployment benefits have a dollar and 64 multiplier effect in terms of consumer spending because the money Unemployed people consume it, they spend it in local stores. Those stores pay their workers, they pay their suppliers, and the money doesn't get saved. 
So we know that this will lead to a decline in personal income, personal spending. We saw one, you know, one reason that the second quarter GDP numbers were disappointing was because of the decline in personal income as the stimulus, you know, wore off. Uh, and I think we'll see a similar effect as we go into the third and fourth quarter. I think the the experience of either observing unemployment insurance or actually experiencing receiving unemployment insurance during this pandemic has made it clear for millions of people that traditional state programs are are significantly limited, particularly in their coverage of gig workers. And you know, of course, each state system is different. But can you discuss for our listeners some broad reforms that all states should adopt to improve and expand their UI coverage? Well, I mean, I think people had not been exposed to the unemployment program, you know, before. Uh, the, you know, the pandemic, um, and they were, they had a first hand uh, witness, uh, you know, to these challenges, huge delays, confusion, netherworld, you know, of losing your benefit claim. And, and that was worse in the states who, you know, by their own admission had designed their unemployment program like Florida, or North Carolina, expressly to divert as many unemployed people away from aid thinking of it in the most pejorative sense of welfare and not as a worker benefit. And those states, you know, struggled mightily, you know, during the pandemic to get benefits out while other states that had a more, you know, historical positive, you know, view of the program like Colorado uh, or Rhode Island or New Jersey didn't face, you know, the same kind of delays, even though every state suffered. One thing we did during the pandemic was we sought to even out some of those disparities, you know, a system where the benefits are less than $200, you know, per week uh, in the state of Louisiana to, you know, well over $500 a week uh, in Massachusetts. We even out some of those differences with federal benefits, a federal supplement on top of the state benefit, federal benefits for those that are ineligible or disqualified from their state assistance, we evened out some of those regional differences, but now we're back to the status quo, where it's a huge difference if you're laid off in Jackson, Mississippi or Boston, Massachusetts. You've written about um, trigger policies and, and those popularized by Claudia Sam. Can you describe how those policies would work? And if there was a trigger policy in place now, would we be seeing a lapse in unemployment benefits? Well, we talked about, and this is something that had been proposed you know, by some Senate Democrats at the end of last year, was rather than just saying, oh, September 6th, we think everything's going to be back to normal on September 6th. Let's end the benefits then. Say, no, let's look at something more firm. The national unemployment rate is 5% for a three-month period. The rate of pandemic cases are down to an agreed-upon manageable level. You know, let's trigger this and connect this to something that was concrete rather than an arbitrary date. If we had done something like that, we wouldn't have been in a situation where, oh, the Delta surge seems like maybe a reason to not end the benefits right now. We would have had a provision in law that the benefits might have kept going uh, until those infections came back down. Getting finally back to this question of incongruence between particularly job openings in the restaurant industry and job seekers in that industry, um, it, it seems like we have a, a mismatch problem here with many workers wanting to work in higher wage industries, but most of the job openings being concentrated in lower wage work. Is the solution to this 
incongruence simply getting low-wage employers to boost their wages, or do we need to also generate policy that incentivizes the creation of new jobs in these higher-paying sectors? Well, I mean, I think we probably need some of both. You know, we need, you know, the bottom jobs, the worst paying, the worst conditions to have a better floor. You know, jobs in our factories were not always good. They became good because people organized for them to be better through unions and through um, regulations for how people were to be treated. Laws like the eight-hour day, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, you know, these laws made industrial work uh, safer for the working class. You know, and we need the same kind of laws for the service economy and the care uh, economy. But we also, yeah, we also need to be, you know, redeveloping our, our high-wage sectors you know, having America, you know, produce things, you know, that are value added, being a leader in the green economy, you know, being able to produce our medical devices and have the good jobs that are associated to it. But, you know, it's my belief that, you know, more jobs can be good jobs. All jobs in our country require skill and they should be fairly compensated. And you've seen how in the face of demand, you know, the $15 minimum wage has started to be a standard, you know, for companies, even including Walmart. Um, so this is something that can be achievable, you know, when there's a will to do it. That's Andrew Stetner, Senior Fellow at the Century Foundation. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Wildfires to hurricanes, natural disasters have been unrelenting in these past few months. All around the world, communities have been suffering from uncontrollable weather emergencies. After the dust settles, many look for help to find housing and basic necessities. But as organizations come into these communities to allegedly help, a different kind of disaster may just be beginning. Amara Evering has more. A storm is brewing in the Gulf of Mexico. This new storm, called Tropical Storm Nicholas, is heading towards Texas and Louisiana. Louisiana, which is still recovering from Hurricane Ida, that ripped through its coast only two weeks ago, leaving thousands without power and even one bayou community mostly uninhabitable. By the time Ida had climbed its way up the East Coast and ravaged New York and parts of New Jersey, dozens of lives had been lost and millions of dollars of damages had already been made. From hurricanes to flash floods and unrelenting wildfires, communities are still trying to figure out how to rebuild despite constant climate change-fueled disasters. For many Americans, the Red Cross is the organization that first comes to mind when disaster strikes. I mean, isn't the Red Cross always on call? Doesn't it restore communities after things like hurricanes and earthquakes? Well, according to NPR correspondent Laura Sullivan, this might not actually be the case. The Red Cross had a real habit of under-delivering and over-exaggerating. There's nobody over it that is ever really held accountable for answering questions and making changes over time. So what does it mean to under-deliver and over-exaggerate? Well, in the case of the Red Cross, it means looking like you're helping, but not really helping. 
This was the case for the devastating Hurricane Sandy in 2012. Americans sent millions to the Red Cross to help victims of the hurricane. But Sullivan and other journalists found that this money was being spent in, let's say, questionable ways. We found after, especially after Hurricane Sandy, that the Red Cross had spent more time and effort putting out the press releases and doing the PR than actually providing the services for for what people needed on the ground. We had insiders, people, sources telling us from the Red Cross and showing us documents that revealed this, as well as people on the record saying that they were diverting trucks that were meant to help people on the ground to press conferences, or they were driving empty trucks around the community to make it look like they were delivering supplies when really they weren't. Despite millions of dollars in donations, the Red Cross's handling of Hurricane Sandy was a disaster. Victims who were disabled slept in their wheelchairs for days. Massive amounts of food went to waste and basic supplies were lacking. That was one of the most devastating things for people here in the United States during Hurricane Sandy was that they thought that the Red Cross was going to be there to help them. And in a lot of cases, they weren't able to. Chief Executive of the Red Cross, Gail McGovern, publicly said that their handling of the disaster was, quote, near flawless. Politicians and celebrities alike vouched for the Red Cross after that. And despite this dramatic mismanagement of money, the Red Cross maintained its reputation of the U.S.'s premier disaster relief organization. I mean, look, the Red Cross is one of the most well-known organizations the world over, and it's trusted the world over, which is which is huge for an organization to have that kind of trust and for an organization, you know, to be able to spread its wings even from the United States into other countries. But despite the Red Cross being well trusted, many had well justified critiques. There were a lot of critics of the Red Cross that told us that the Red Cross had gotten so big that it was existing to exist, that it was raising money to make sure that the organization itself existed. And it was paying the salaries of tens of thousands of people and good salaries, very good salaries for their highest officers. Hurricane Sandy was just one of the many examples of the Red Cross raising millions of dollars for disaster relief and it being mismanaged or simply untraceable. At best, they were unorganized, and at worst, they were profiting off of these very disasters. There is very little oversight or transparency at the Red Cross about where Each dollar is actually being spent. Even Congress was unable to get this information out of the Red Cross when they were asking for it. The Red Cross says that its money is visible, but what they do is they give you these big pots of money in a big generic title, and you don't actually know how much money each dollar that was sent to this program and what did this program do exactly. And that kind of transparency to this day, you cannot get from the Red Cross. What Sullivan found instead was a confusing paper trail, which led her eventually to Haiti after the 2011 earthquake in the country. After the Red Cross raised a staggering half a billion dollars for Haiti relief efforts, she was wondering where all that money went. 
It said repeatedly that they were going to provide tens of thousands of permanent homes. I mean, that's what the head of the Red Cross stood up at the press club and told the public that. And they also said in all of their literature that they had created 130,000 homes for Haitians. And we went to Haiti in search of those homes, and we ended up finding six permanent homes. So what we found is that the Red Cross was using things like they would go around a neighborhood with a hammer and show people how to use the hammer to fix their own home. And they were counting that as having given this person a new home. So we, we saw this kind of exaggerating press releases and behavior repeatedly in a lot of their programs. They said they spent tens of millions of dollars on a disease prevention program. In this case, they were going around and showing people how to wash their hands. And in sometimes in communities that didn't even have running water or soap. And then that would sort of rack up, you know, this was 30 million, you know, what tens of millions of more dollars. And that's how they kind of got to their figure of having spent this money. When we looked at the actual spending and the checks that were written, it did not add up to half a billion dollars. And it really didn't add up for those in communities that were promised schools and roads and homes from the Red Cross. The most devastated people were the people who lived in neighborhoods that were promised homes. And we went into some of these communities that they had been promised a, you know, a $20 million project of schools and roads and homes. And years had passed, years had gone by and nothing had happened. The Red Cross came in, they put a big sign on the wall in the town square, and then nothing happened after that. The Red Cross often remained distant from the communities it was serving in Haiti. Those that often worked on these projects were not Haitian, and if they were, they were sometimes met with prejudice. This was a sense that the people on the ground just wouldn't be able to do these projects and that they need to hire somebody, you know, from the Red Cross who was either white or, you know, turned out to be white or turned out to be anybody that just wasn't local. And, and a couple of the folks that we talked to who were really struggling to get these projects on the ground happen, local Haitians on the ground happening, saying that they got memos or heard things in meetings that were just, you know, in its very basic form, racist. Money went to hiring and supporting the lifestyles of staffers who were from the U.S. Our reporting found and what people were telling us was that there was a sense of kind of a gravy train, that these were good jobs to get. They paid these huge salaries and they would be doled out to people in the United States or from other countries who were sort of granted these good jobs to have. And, and then the other problem with that was that you're now paying for all these people who are Americans or from other countries to come into Haiti, and now you're paying their living expenses, their food, their travel, and all this money is now going to the overhead to bring in these outside folks into the country to do the job that they couldn't, it turns out, even do as well as the people who already live there anyway. And, and that was eating up a lot of the money. There was a lot of complaints as well that people were living a very sort of luxurious lifestyle and on the Red Cross dime, that these people who were flown in from other countries to do these jobs were very expensive and they were sort of living a, a wealthy lifestyle in the middle of a disaster. The result of these projects that allegedly amounted to $500 million was six permanent homes in Haiti 
Many felt like the Red Cross benefited more from this disaster than Haitian people benefited from the Red Cross. There's there's a sense also among critics that the Red Cross has become too big and that it has lost touch with the very thing that it means to do, which is what a lot of local charities on the ground that already exist in a community are able to do, which is actually figure out what's needed, know how to get that work done, and hire the, the people in the community that can get it done. Despite these scandals, the Red Cross seemed to have less and less oversight over time. But to the public, the Red Cross remained a popular organization, often one that represented the government in times of disaster. Because it's this hybrid that has a government uh, job, if you will, to go and, and, and be the force of the United States in the middle of a disaster along with FEMA, um, it ends up in this sort of quasi world of sort of it's a charity, but it's also tied to the government. As climate change intensifies everything from heavy rains to droughts, we're left with having to find new ways to respond to disasters. Though many of us don't have all the answers, one thing is clear. Let's start by asking the community first. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Amara Embering. One of the most significant events of the 21st century, which only a few people remember now because of 9-11, was the World Conference Against Racism, Racial Discrimination, Xenophobia, and Related Intolerance in Durban, South Africa. The conference concluded on September 8th, just three days before the towers fell, after the U.S. and Israel walked out over demands by participating non-government organizations that Zionism be defined as racism and that reparations are owed to black people for slavery and the transatlantic slave trade. I was one among thousands of journalists in attendance. And James Early, then Assistant Secretary of Education and Public Service at the Smithsonian Institution, was a delegate in attendance. Indeed, uh, and it's good that you point out uh, those two things, um, which had been stumbling blocks, to put it politely, in the pre-conferences of government, uh, were the issue of uh, Zionism as racism uh, and the issue of reparations for slavery. And so there had been a number of pre-conferences uh, with uh, three committees, Strasbourg, uh, one in Tehran, uh, where that issue of racism and Zionism was raised. One in Dakar uh, was also raised. And this was a splitting issue uh, between the European bloc, uh, essentially, and the Latin American, Caribbean, and Asian bloc, with Japan joining the European bloc. And these were such hot issues that uh, George Bush, um, some weeks before the conference, issued a public statement saying that the issue of reparations had, had been resolved. He said he had been informed. He made a public statement um, uh, about that to show you the sharpness of the issues. Uh, and so that was a splitting issue. You had uh, President Abdullahi Wad from Senegal uh, calling reparations childish. Uh, so there was a split on the Africa side. 
in Tehran, uh, the Middle Eastern representatives had wanted to link reparations to the struggle against apartheid in South Africa. And the South African government said no, they did not want it linked because it would unsettle the compromise agreement that they had reached with the white apartheid government that they had defeated with the help of the Cubans, to which I will return shortly. Um, so that fast forward 20 years looking back, people ask, what is the measure? What is the impact? Well, now equating um, Israeli apartheid occupation with racism and uh, the discussion of reparations uh, for uh, the enslavement of uh, over 12 million African people throughout the Americas, including in, in other areas of the world, are now at the center of national and international policy discourse. So that is a measure of, of the progress, uh, despite um, all of the tensions and contradictions that went down in South Africa. The U.S. delegation walked out. Colin Powell, who was in the State Department, called them home. That was Ambassador Sutherland, who I had worked with uh, earlier in some UNESCO stuff. Uh, that delegation left with the Israelis and the Canadians. Um, but it was Fidel Castro. Uh, there were, you know, there were over 2,000 registered uh, delegates, uh, over 17,000 participants, over 1,000 registered media um, people at the conference, so was, and over 4,000 NGOs, about 4,000 NGOs. So it was a huge gathering with a lot of issues being raised. Uh, the Dalit, uh, the Roma, uh, issues of uh, gay, lesbian uh, issues were raised. It was emerging as a global democratic question. Uh, indigenous people uh, raised there were there was a, a lot of tension, a lot of contradictions, and the U.S. threw around its weight uh, and organized uh, in the pre-conferences and organized at the conference uh, to not allow these issues to come forth. People should keep in mind that this was a government-called conference, the United Nations conference by representatives of government, and then there was a parallel conference uh, with uh, these 2,000 or so uh, participant uh, delegates from civil society, and so. Uh, there were tension lines all along, and um, out of that context, um, these two issues arose as splitting issues, and uh, because civil society pushed them and some members of government, like from the Middle East, uh, pushed these issues of reparation and the struggle against uh, Zionism as racism uh, that has now, 20 years later, emerged as touchstones that came out of that conference. You mentioned the U.S. delegation was called home by Secretary of State Colin Powell and walked out. You've also mentioned what seemed to be an equally important NGO engagement so that for the that at the same forum there were governments debating as well as NGOs in large numbers and the United States delegation may have better been served by its NGO delegation than its official government delegation. Indeed, it would have been better served. Um, however, uh, the United States is a rogue government uh, on the issue of um, Israeli apartheid and, and Zionism as racism. It, is a, it was a rogue government in relationship to the struggle against racism in its own country and uh, countries around the world. And so the United States walking out, I think, should be seen 
uh, as a victory on the part of civil society in which the United States uh, felt incompetent, incapable of competing uh, with its own citizens and with other citizens around the world, such that it stepped out of the arena. Uh, but the arena continued its engagement and carried forth uh, its strategic discussion. And again, 20 years later, uh, the seeds uh, that were planted there had been nurtured and now have come full blown into uh, public arenas literally across the world. And the United States still stands outside uh, of uh, that context. Uh, but the world has moved dramatically forward on these two issues, uh, on the Palestinian question and on the question of reparations. Cuba. Cuba. Fidel Castro was among uh, the 60 or so heads of state um, uh, there. He gave an extraordinary speech. I just want to read a quick quote. No one has the right to boycott this conference, which tries to bring some sort of relief to the overwhelming majority of mankind afflicted by unbearable suffering and enormous injustice. Neither has anyone the right to set preconditions to this conference or urge it to avoid the discussion of historical responsibility, fair compensation, or the way we decide to rate the dreadful genocide perpetrated at this very moment against our Palestinian brothers by extreme right leaders who, in alliance, with the hegemonic superpower pretend to be acting on behalf of another people, which throughout most of 2000 years was the victim uh, of the most egregious uh, 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 oppression. And so he set forth uh, a unqualified uh, hit on how uh, the Palestinian issue had evolved and on the issue of, he speaks to the issue of reparations uh, also at that conference saying that reparation should be given. And, you know, he talked about the Tobin tax and poverty and so forth and so on. So it was a very, very important speech. And I, I emphasize his speech uh, because it is one now that resonates throughout the Americas that unfortunately a progressive and left-wing government who should be commemorating that speech and should be asking themselves, how does it reflect the genocide going on against uh, the Afro-Colombian uh, people today that the U.S. government supports, or the fact that Brazil, over 50% uh, by official census figures, uh, self-identified uh, citizens in the census of Brazil identify themselves as Afro-descendants, uh, sixth or seventh largest economy in the world, uh, but with Latin America being the most unequal economic region of the entire world. Um, uh, how is it that in the case of Cuba, um, my my dear, dear socialist Cuba, where there is a significant debate about the nexus of racial identity, uh, racism and racial discrimination going on, exemplified in the fact that President Diaz-Canal Bermudez in Cuba has convened a presidential commission against racism and discrimination, their terms, not mine. How is it that we are not talking about the speech of Fidel Castro? And what are the policy implications within countries and across countries, uh, particularly given that the center of global reparations uh, institutionally is in uh, Jamaica at the Mona campus uh, led by Sir Hilary Beckles, uh, which has brought legal cases against European countries and which some of the Nordic countries in Europe have said, yes, 
we need to step forward with you to talk about reparations and to begin to put forth funds uh, so that they have a research center and they're involved in policy issues, not just in commemorations and declarations. So this is the context that I bring to view this feature of, 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 uh, of uh, Fidel Castro. There is no doubt that this meeting is a symbol of the future, the future of the world. This including all the great diversity of views and ideas. I realize that the people are trying to build a new world within that diversity. We base ourselves on the viewpoint that the economic order imposed on the world is unsustainable. Fidel Castro, addressing the World Conference Against Racism in September 2001, just days before 9-11. James Early is former Assistant Secretary of Education and Public Service at the Smithsonian Institution. He is a board member of the Institute for Policy Studies. Attica Blues, a composition by saxophonist Archie Shepp, commemorates the bloody Attica prison uprising on September 9, 1971, 
when 1,278 of 2,200 of New York's Attica State Prison inmates took control of the prison, seizing 42 staff as hostages, demanding better living conditions and political rights. On the orders of Governor Nelson Rockefeller, after four days of negotiations, state police retook control of the prison, leaving at least 43 people dead, including 10 correctional officers and civilian employees and 33 inmates. And now our last word. Activists are calling for the return of a black cemetery to a Maryland church. A portion of the cemetery had been purchased by Westwood Tower Apartments and has been covered over by a parking lot since the late 1960s. The Montgomery County Housing Opportunities Commission now seeks to sell the property to a private developer for $51 million. The Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition filed a lawsuit in August claiming the sale violates state law. An estimated 500 bodies of enslaved people or relatives of the enslaved rest at that cemetery, the lawsuit states. This past Friday, the Maryland Poor People's Campaign and the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition hosted a combined in-person and online event titled On Stolen Land, Rally and March to Save Moses Cemetery. This is the Reverend William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, speaking by Zoom on Friday to participants at the rally on the larger context of the land struggle over the Moses African Cemetery. What we need to also talk about in this moment is that over the course of American history, approximately 11 million acres of black people's land was lost and stolen. This is about land theft, land theft, land theft. And it was stolen through fraud, and I'm reading from this article, deception and outright political trickery. And much of this land theft has happened in the last 50 years. And we know that not only was land theft an issue of black people, Native Americans suffered through land theft. Uh, Latino people, <laughs> so we stole a whole st two states from them. From the Mexican people, we stole Texas, <laughs> Arizona, and New Mexico. And the reason we stole Texas is because the Texans wanted to keep their slaves. I want us to look at this in this larger framework. Uh, poor white folk have had their land stolen. We know that in this country, when it started, we gave an unusual power to land. We said only white male landowners could participate in the political processes and vote. We fund schools based on land ownership, property taxes. So if you undermine or depreciate the land in the community, it also then depreciates the schools they can have. That's why you have certain kinds of schools in certain communities and other and, and lower uh, uh, finance schools and other because it's based on property taxes. 
Now, what we've seen, going back to this article, is that if we had not had 11 million acres of black people's land stolen, these properties could have provided a foundation for black wealth building in the post-Jim Crow America. Instead, you get put people in slavery for 250 years, Jim Crow 100 years, you never gave the 40 acres and the mule, and then on top of it, you steal the land that they do have, and other people make money off of the land. We having this same situation down in Cancer Alley, where greedy corporations, poisoning corporations that have caused you all kinds of cancer, came in and took the same land that black people once worked when they were slaves, black people worked when they were sharecroppers, black people were buried in, and now they're taking that same land and have taken it and putting this Liz knows multi, multi, multi billion trillion dollar companies. This is about Maryland, but it's also bigger. And so what happens is, instead of people's land, particularly black people, people of color's land being a source of, of closing the racial gap, black land holdings became a key force in widening the gap because the lands were stolen. Black land taking, according to this article, has been as instrumental as the denial of opportunities to acquire property in creating the racial wealth inequality. Black land theft, black land theft has been one of the main reasons for inequality, economic inequality in the black communities and on certain sides of town. Black land, if you look at whose land was stolen, it also becomes an indicator many times of the barriers to upward economic mobility. Can I teach for a moment? And understanding how this happening happened and identifying who did it, because it didn't just happen. It's not like the folk were just, just silly and gave their land away. We got to look at who did it and address the laws, the policies, and the practices that allowed it and continue to allow it to happen. And anytime you're going to have a serious conversation about race and economics, you have to deal with the issue of land theft. It's got to be as a part of that conversation and a part of the fight. So what we know is in the decades after the end of the Reconstruction as a nation abandoned its black citizens and the South descended into Jim Crow, many African-Americans like this community you all talk about has been so, so, and so much pride succeeded against all odds. And right after slavery, despite the odds, many of these communities, our ancestors, they acquired a remarkable amount of land. By 1910, Black American, Black people claimed ownership of 16 million acres in America. These are the former slaves. This is what they did. They knew the value of land because they had worked it. And they did so in spite of constant threat, of forced dispossession, the threat of mobs, as Liz mentioned, the threat of political officials. They knew that to buy a piece of land, eat, to have a piece of land could get you killed murdered, but they did it anyway. And 
that we know that they face sudden and violent attacks. We know, for instance, in Forsyth County, Georgia, in 1912, uh, and in the destruction of Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921, things we don't even talk about most of the time in history. What were those all about? Land theft. Taking the land, because with the land, you have the potential not only to grow crops, but to build businesses. But they didn't just do it like that. It wasn't always violence. That's why I heard the lawyer say, we got to figure this out. How did they do this? Who participated in it? And you find out sometimes when you start digging in this stuff, you might even find some black folk that participated in it. Got a little kickback in there. <laughs> you might not find that it's all about white versus black because they use other means like white tax assessors routinely overvaluing black owned land forcing them, the property owners to bear heavier tax burden. And then when they can't pay the tax burden, they come in and steal the land. And at the same time, they drain the families of their earnings. Or if black owned property became valuable or black property owner challenged white supremacy, the local officials could simply declare the property tax delinquent and sell it as a tax sale, or they claim eminent domain and come in and take the land for a little of nothing and then put businesses on the land. In Thurgood Marshall from Maryland, right? Am I right? Thurgood Marshall went to law school. I know he went to law school in Maryland. And Thurgood Marshall said this about land. He said, he described the manipulation of tax delinquency laws by white officials as a practice and custom of depriving Negroes of their property through subterfuge. There's been some subterfuge in this taking of this property that you're fighting for. Tanisha Coates wrote the case for reparation in 2014. He declared that you have to deal with land there. Michael McCoy of the New York Times said that, excuse me, another writer said this, uh, at the dawn of the civil rights era, era African-Americans still held substantial amounts of land, mostly in the South, and a major portion of it, which was in some of the region's fastest growing areas and hottest real estate markets, thanks to huge federal investments during the New Deal. The South, from Maryland all the way over to Texas in the mid 20th century, went from being what President Franklin Roosevelt described as the nation's number one economic problem in the 1930s to the booming South and Sunbelt in the 1960s. And with this growth and with all of this investment, black land became a target. How can we plunder it? How can we steal it? because profit-seeking speculators wanted to get the land out of black control in order to build businesses that would render profits for somebody else for years to come. And that's our show for today. Monday Morning QB, is produced by Chris Banker Drowns, Amara Evering, and Sue Goodwin. I'm Askia Mohammed. You can follow us on Twitter 
at twitter.com slash WPFWMMQB. Thank you for listening, and thanks for contributing to WPFW Washington and WBAI New York. Thank you.